When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Reality Radio for a really great future. We're talking real money. Welcome to Talking Real Money. I'm Tom Cox. Special edition this week as uh, we we dive into a topic that is critical and growing every single day. It's something that you need to be aware of as an investor. And I'm talking about sustainable investing, ESG, SRI. We'll dive into all that. And our guest is the author of Your Essential Guide to Sustainable Investing. And I'll give the subtitle because that might help you a little bit too, How to Live Your Values and Achieve Your Financial Goals with ESG, SRI, and Impact Investing. He's also the Director of Research at Buckingham Asset Management. Larry Swedro, thank you for uh, talking real money. As always, my pleasure to be with you, Tom. All right. So uh, ESG, I mean, this is... In the book, I think you say it's now about a third of the professionally managed assets use use this term. Tell us first, what is it? What 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 do I need to know about it? Yeah, so uh, ESG stands for Environmental, Social, and Governance. Uh, obviously, environmental things related to climate change, carbon emissions, it's uh, water pollution, etc. The social are things like diversity. Uh, how, how many women and minorities you have on the board and gender pay gaps, things like that. And governance is, do you protect the shareholder rights uh, and act in the best interests of the shareholders? Uh, and that evolved out of the original strategies, which go back hundreds of years, which was originally called socially responsible investing. At least in the U.S., you could think of it starting with the Quakers uh, during the Civil War, they said, we don't want to invest in anything related to slavery, for example, even obviously before the war. And then that got expanded to things like called the vice industries or sin industries, tobacco, alcohol, gambling, uh, pornography. Some people add guns or defense. Uh, some even add nuclear energy. Uh, and these are exclusionary rules. So we don't want to invest in these things because they don't match our values. ESG is much more about the corporate behavior as to your personal values being the issue with socially responsible investing. So you have seven rating agencies that rate these companies on these three categories and then give them a combined score to help investors decide does these companies align with my values? And lastly, you have something called impact investing, which is much closer to philanthropy. Uh, impact investing is where you're trying to uh, help a particular situation, uh, but you're making an investment, but that's not your primary goal is profitability. So my co-author, Sam Adams, as a good example, is loves to drink coffee. He's also a believer in quote, natural foods. 
And there was a coffee uh, farm, if you will, in Peru that wanted to get the label that this is all natural. Now, it was all natural, but you have to pay to get the meet the regulatory rules there. And they didn't have the money they needed so they could charge more for their coffee because it had this branding. So Sam contributed a few thousand dollars along with other people. Uh, he eventually got repaid back in a few months and it enabled him to live his values, feel good, and make a small profit there as well. Yeah, and I enjoyed the uh, the, the part about the Iroquois REIT as well, which is something I knew nothing, absolutely nothing about. So I've taken a little more time to look into that. Let me read you a quote from Yahoo Finance. And, and, again, and, and I want to make sure I get back to the – is there sort of a standard here? Is You mentioned seven different rating agencies, but Yahoo Finance says ESG redu- would reduce the allocation to ExxonMobil, but the sustainable would eliminate the allocation to ExxonMobil. Do you find that to be a fair characterization of the two? No. I, in fact, I find it fairly stupid. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, go ahead. Uh, and I'll explain why that makes no sense logically. And it's why I think people make some bad decisions regarding ESG. So the objective I think we all want to see is the world moving to a more sustainable planet and how we use our resources. And what you want to do then is help companies that are being more sustainable in their actions, creating new technologies, for example, that help us create more efficient use of energy, renewable sources. Well, it's the it's actually the energy oil companies that are producing the most green patents today mm-hmm. to make the world more sustainable. So if you screen those companies out, what you're doing by definition, if enough people follow that, you look lower their PE ratios, you increase their cost of debt because you won't buy their bonds, and that raises their cost of capital, depriving them of the very funds they need to use to make those investments. Uh, So that is why I'm a big believer, instead of taking a approach of scoring companies against the market, but instead scoring them in a way that is called best-in-class or across the industry. So you have companies like Total Petroleum, a French company, that says we're no longer making any new investments in our oil fields, but we're going to continue to harvest those fields to generate the profits that we can use to make big investments in sustainable energy, and they're a leader in that field. So if you screen out Total, you're depriving them of the very capital they're using to make the transition to the world that we all want. So that's a great example. Well, and it's a great example of how confusing I think this is to most consumers, even though, again, your book points out that about a third of the managed money today uses some sort of ESG standard. So to that end, you mentioned seven sort of rating agencies, if you will. Is there one like index where people can go look at it and say, this is the to compare, you know, ESG two is, I mean, like the standard and Poor's 500, et cetera. Is there anything like that where they can just go say that is truly the standard? No, unfortunately we're not in that world yet. Although there is something called the sustainable accounting standards board that is trying to create specific standards of measurement 
Uh, uh, the SEC is now pushing to require more transparency and disclosures. The problem is very different than the one where in the corporate bond market, we do have three different rating agencies that are the main ones, Fitch, Standard and & Poor's and & Moody's. But there, as we point out in our book, the correlation of their ratings is like 99.5%. So if Moody's rates a company triple B, the odds are very high. The other two will also be triple B. Uh, the problem with ESG ratings is, for example, and I'm just going to make up a, an example here, Morningstar, one of the raters, could say we're looking at ESG and we will give a 33% part of our score to the E, also to the S and the G. And sustained analytics could say we're going to give 70% weighting on one. And then they look at different things. One of them might say, in looking at our social rating, we'll consider how many women and minorities on the board. Someone else will say how many women and minorities are in the management ranks. Somebody else would look at pay gaps between minorities uh, and women, as an example. And how do you measure the emissions, for example? Do you look at what is called scope one, which is all of the emissions you create when you produce your product. That's what most people report on. Scope two is becoming a bit more popular now with some moving in that direction. So that's the inputs that you buy products from and then you manufacture from those. But really you want to look at all three. So scope three would include something like Amazon doesn't produce anything, if you will, maybe uses even renewable energy to run their plants and computers. Uh, but scope three is you got all these Amazon trucks driving around polluting the air uh, with all these cars. So how do you include them when most companies don't even report on that? So it is a bit difficult. Uh, and we do discuss this in the book. You'll find very low correlations, like averaging only about 0.5 or 0.6 between one rater. So there are two ways to address it. One, don't worry about that. You can say, I'm going to do my best and I'll take Morningstar or Sustain Analytics ratings. Another is you can hire a money manager like Dimensional, which is one of the firms my uh, firm uses, and they take a best-in-class approach. We like that. That's another way. And a third way, which has been made much more possible by this change in technology that allows direct indexing, if you will. So if Tom Cock wants to say, here's the screens I want to apply. And by the way, I want to screen out these industries or companies. And then I want to add a value tilt to my portfolio to try to capture those returns. I can create that portfolio today. And 20 years ago, you may have needed $5 million to do that. Now with a few hundred thousand, you could do that. And the costs have come way down to as little as 25, 30, 35 basis points to be able to do that. And Aperio, Parametric, and Dimensional are three firms we use to do that. Larry Swedro is our guest here on Talking Real Money. We're talking about his new book, Your Essential Guide to Sustainable Investing. Interesting. So when you, by the way, if you, if you Google 
Uh, I have no idea where they are on all the standards, but if you Google the term sustainable investing, you get 123 million uh, results, uh, of which one today on Earth Day says uh, sustainable investing will not help the world. What is your take? Will it help the world? Will it make it a better place? Uh, I think that that statement could not be more wrong. And it's uh, we have a whole chapter dedicated in the book to discussing this subject. So let's think about what economic theory uh, says about sustainable investing and how it impacts risk and return. And then we can talk quickly about the empirical evidence. So quite simply, if enough group of investors refuse to buy the stocks of a whole group of industries, say tobacco, alcohol, gambling companies, that means that their PE ratios are going to be lower and their valuations will be less. Uh, but it doesn't change their earnings. So you pay less for the same dollar earnings. And if I'm willing to hold my nose and own those stocks, I'm going to get a higher expected return. And that's exactly the, what the empirical evidence says. The sin industries have outperformed the market for 100 years by two and a half to three percent a year both in the U.S. and in the U.K. So the highest performing industries have not been, as probably most of your listeners would think, not been technology or healthcare. They've actually been the sin industries uh, there. So now what you're facing is we have this massive wave of cash flows that really began around 2018, where this became a big trend probably motivated by what we're seeing going on in the climate and also on the social issues, more focus on that as well. And now all of a sudden we're getting tens of billions of dollars every month being focused on sustainable investing. We're now, as you noted, a third of all professional money in the U.S. is that way, but it's 50% in Europe and the trend is rising quickly. So if you get enough companies uh, investors screening out companies and money going into the ones that have good scores, what you're doing is you're driving the valuations up of the green stocks, lowering their cost of capital, and putting the brown or sin stocks at a competitive disadvantage. So CEOs and <clears throat> excuse me, CFOs are recognizing this. I can't compete if I have to pay a lot more for my debt a lot more for my equity, so I need to change my behavior. And the evidence is very clear that through their investment decisions, individual company, uh, individual investors are driving corporate behavior to make them better corporate citizens. And that also tends to make them more profitable because obviously if you're a more efficient user of energy, uh, you're, you'll be more profitable. But here's one other really important thing. Millennials in particular are very focused on the ESG issue. And we are in an incredibly tight labor market, the tightest ever, with 1.8 job openings for every unemployed person. We've never been there. If you want to attract young talent, you better be a good corporate citizen, have good ESG scoring, or you will not be able to attract employees. And what the evidence from some recent papers we cite in our book shows that companies that have good ESG scores attract better talent, 
the employees are more satisfied. They feel good about being able to work at companies that express their values. And that drives productivity, making the companies more profitable. So executives are waking up to this and we see that directly in actions. So the bottom line is this, you can feel good uh, that your investment decisions are actually driving corporate behavior. And that brings me to another question, which is it also pops up on the Google search. And that is this term, I don't know if you coined it or if someone else did, greenium. So is this, so there actually has been a sort of outsized return from many of these companies recently. Is that true? Recently, yes. Uh, so here's the way to think about it. For a hundred years or so, the sin or brown stocks outperformed by 3%. Now you can think of it as a taste or a risk-based preference resulting in that premium because people screen them out. But the evidence also shows, and here's more good news for ESG investors, that companies that have good ESG scores actually have less what we would call tail risk, risk of bad events like an environmental spill like the Exxon Valdez or the Gulf spill. They have less risk of consumer boycotts. They have less risk of lawsuits, uh, less risk of frauds because they have better controls. Uh, so that's an important uh, benefit as well. So what happens is ex ante, before the fact, we should expect the green stocks to underperform, which they had done for about 100 years, by two and a half to three percent. But so much money was coming into them. Popularity. Think of the dot com stocks in the late 90s. Their values went way up, giving capital gains, but it didn't change their earnings. And eventually that bubble burst. So what's happening is you have a conflicting force here. The brown companies have higher expected returns from simplicity. Let's call it 3%. So much money came in between 2018 and 2020. This is a paper called Dynamic Equilibrium that they found that the green stocks actually outperformed by 7% a year during that period, which means they had to make up that three to outperform by seven. There was a greenium, if you will, of 10%. Now, my own personal view is we're still in the early to middle innings of this transition to a new equilibrium. Surveys are showing that they expect ultimately, maybe in 10 or 15 years, 80 to 90% of the world will be investing with sustainable objectives. So we could see a continuation of green stocks outperforming brown for a while longer, but eventually you should expect lower returns because the prices got bid up, but you do also have less risk and that's important to understand. Yeah. And you know what? Another thing I love, and by the way, I did love the book, uh, very educational, even to somebody who's been in the industry for almost 30 years, but um, you name names in here. I mean, it's kind of cool. You've got actually fun family. You mentioned dimensional and a couple others earlier, but you also have Calvert in here. Are those some of the, the fun families you think people should uh, look at when they're going to consider ESG investing? Well, we don't make any specific recommendations per se in the book. We try to give people some examples because everybody's belief systems uh, are different. Calvert is a religiously based uh, sustainable investor, if you will, or more on the SRI side as opposed to sustainability. 
Uh, there are all kinds of hundreds now of different sustainable funds. I think last year alone, something like 400 were created. So investors really need to decide what values they are seeking, how they want to impact the risk and return of the portfolio. And we show how you can do that in the book. And we do provide some kind of examples. They're not meant as recommendations, but just showing how you could do this in different ways, including you, creating your yeah, own separate account. And are you worried about greenwashing? Yeah, that's something that definitely is going on. It's no big surprise. Certainly, I'm sure not to you, Tom, a veteran of the industry. The Wall Street knows you got these tens of billions of dollars coming in. So just like in the dot-com era, you had corporations changing the name and adding dot-com and seeing the stock price go up. We're seeing greenwashing going on. There's some papers we cite that show that XYZ Mutual Fund just changes its name to XYZ Sustainable Fund, but they don't change their behavior. And in some cases, they even get worse scores after the fact, meaning the companies they own. So you really have to do your due diligence or work with a professional investment advisor who's doing that work for you. And, and, and again, the book is absolutely true. We've got a couple other topics for you if you have a couple more minutes. I read it. I loved uh, your essential guide to sustainable investing. Larry Swedro should also mention your co-author, Samuel Adams. It's a terrific read, I think, for any investor because it's just a topic you need to know about. A couple other quick things here before we let you go. Uh, the 10-year treasury is uh, flirting with 3% here. Any recommendations for people sort of investing in, in a more inflationary time? Yeah, well, one, I, I think you it is a concern here because I believe the Fed has uh, adopted a very poor monetary policy. They're way behind the game here. And if you just think about even if you're an optimist and think inflation's headed back down to 2%, historically, we've had a 2% term premium and, fit, and uh, treasury bills uh, have historically yielded about 50 basis points over inflation. So if you take 2% inflation, 50 basis points T-bills, 2% term premium between the one month and the 10-year, that's 4.5% 10-year. I think we're likely headed up towards that range. Certainly Fed funds historically have had to go well above the neutral rate to knock inflation down. And so the Fed is clearly way behind I think we're headed to the three and a half, four, maybe higher if inflation turns out to be less transitory, which I think it will be. Uh, but you still have to maintain a sufficient amount of safe bonds in your portfolio to dampen that tail risk of equities, uh, because we can get all kinds of shocks, whether it comes from a Russia invading the Ukraine uh, or uh, whatever kind of problem that we could think of. So that's important. But you may want to limit your term risk here, especially now, uh, even though we've already had the worst quarter in 40 years for bond market. I personally had shifted my portfolio to much shorter term floating rate notes. I use a fund family called Cliffwater. Uh, they have what's called an interval fund that invests in private debt it's, I believe, less credit risk than a Vanguard high yield fund, uh, which is currently yielding under 4%, but it's got five-year maturity. 
this fund is yielding over 7% and has a one month maturity. What you are giving up though is liquidity as you can only access funds quarterly and a minimum of 5% per quarter. But that's a big risk premium to capture uh, while you're also eliminating uh, the term risk. What you are accepting also is some economic cycle risk. But in COVID, this fund lost three or 4%, not like the 10 or 20 that a high yield bond fund would have lost. I think it was even more than that on the Vanguard high yield. But um, one other quick question here for you, because this is another one that comes up a lot. I've I've seen you do a little writing on it. Morningstar believes the future of returns in general, both stocks and bonds, are going to be less than what we've had. Um, Trying to think. Oh, I know our planning software suggests that the future won't be as bright. And nobody, of course, really knows. But what is your take on future stock market returns? When we first wrote in my first edition of your complete guide to a successful and secure retirement, which came out in 2019, uh, or 2018, we wrote that this was the four horsemen of the retirement apocalypse that where investors were faced with historically high PE ratios, which predict lower future returns. The way economists predict future returns, they take the inverse of the P.E. ratio. So if you've got a 20 P.E., that predicts a 5% expected real return, when historically we've earned 7. Uh, some people prefer to use what's called the Cape 10, which is a cyclically adjusted P.E. for 10 years as a maybe a better indicator. That's in the high 30s. So that's going to predict under a 3% real return. And bond yields were around 2%, went even lower. Now they're back up to three, but historically they've been about five. Uh, so investors, uh, I think, are in effect virtually doomed to have lower expected returns un- uh, unless we get a big market correction, but stock prices go down uh, and bond yields go up and then you get higher expected returns from there. But this is a dangerous period for investors They need to plan for that and build that into the plan, how they're going to achieve their goals. It may mean, we point out, working longer, saving more, uh, uh, spending less, those kinds of things. But you need to adapt to the world. You can't just say, I'm entitled to those 10% uh, stock returns and 5% bond yields. That world doesn't exist any longer. It's tough, tough, tough. No question. Uh, before we let you get away, um, you've moved on to pickleball, which people could they could type your name in and see how well you've done with that. But what's the next uh, project for Larry Swedro? Uh, I'm spending most of my time now just writing up the academic research to try to help investors. I write for three websites for those of you who want to follow what the academic research is showing. Um, so I write for Advisor Perspectives, uh, Alpha Architect, and Evidence-Based Investors, typically about four, sometimes five articles a week. And you can follow me simply at Twitter or LinkedIn, and I post anytime one of them goes online. And lastly, I'm working on a new book with a friend of mine, a colleague who I've published some papers with, uh, Marat Maliboga. We're going to write a book about the interesting topic of hedge funds. Oh, well, that'll be, that'll be well worth reading. Uh, (laughs) 
So I'll be waiting for that and, and love all of your work, Larry, and, and really do appreciate your, your time here today on Talking Real Money, and we hope to do it again soon. My pleasure, Tom, and I hope people pick up a copy of our book on your essential guide to sustainable investing uh, and spread the word so others can learn about this important topic and how you can actually live your values and achieve your financial goals at the same time and change the world for the better. Indeed. Thank you, Larry. My pleasure. We hope you realize that the information provided on Talking Real Money is for informational, educational, and hopefully enjoyable purposes only. Providing personalized financial planning or investing advice takes time, so please consult with a really good fee-only fiduciary investment, tax, or legal advisor. We know a good one. Investing must always involve risk. In other words, you can and probably will lose money at times. Also, as much as you want it, no one can accurately and consistently predict the future, so past performance doesn't tell you a darn thing about what the future will bring. Unlike many other programs that say something similar, Talking Real Money is not trying to get you to buy or sell any financial products or securities. Instead, the program is provided as a public service by Appella Capital, a fee-only registered investment advisor. Thanks for listening and please visit TalkingRealMoney.com for more information and disclosures. Are we done now?